Amen. If you have a Bible, please open with me to the prophecy of Nahum. The prophecy of Nahum, that short book towards the end of your Old Testament. We will um, resume our short journey through that prophecy today, looking at chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. That is the entirety of this second chapter. We only have a couple more weeks, Lord willing, after this Sunday in this prophecy. And so we wanted to look today and kind of, there's kind of two titles in, in this sermon, one that deals with what is directly in this text and one that will kind of transpose it forward to seeing the, the fullness of what we see here in Christ. So Nahum chapter 2 verses 1 through 13 and we can consider the idea of being warriors for Christ. This is a battle scene and when we see a battle scene it is a stark reminder that, that we fight this spiritual battle as those who are in Christ's army. But what we'll also see in this text is the devastation of God's wrath. So, so we'll see it in its temporal form with the city of Nineveh. And of course, we can consider the judgment that the Lord pours forth on these people. And we can understand that that is but a, a small picture of the wrath that is to come for those who are not in Christ. Um, the Lord has promised his people, it's been a few weeks since we've been in, in this book, and at the end of chapter 1, the Lord promised to his people restoration and deliverance. He, he said, I will break his yoke bar from upon you, and I will tear off your shackles. He, he told the people of Nineveh that they will be cut off, and that, they will, that he will prepare their grave because they are contemptible. So the Lord has promised his people that they will be delivered and then Nahum comes and he foretells the fall and the destruction of Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire. Again, this is well in advance of when the city will fall. And Nahum gives us this great driving detail of what their fall will look like. And in this declaration, it does have a forceful, almost rhythmic style to it. As Nahum writes, it's really a literary masterpiece as we'll see as we read it you can really kind of envision the scene as we look to the lord's word together so let's read this chapter in its entirety and then we'll ask the lord's blessing on our time would you please stand with me as we give honor and attention to the reading of the word this is god's inspired and inerrant word it is true and it's profitable for our training in righteousness. This is God-breathed scripture. The Lord says, the one who scatters has come up against you. Man the fortress, watch the road, strengthen your back, summon all your strength, for the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel, even though devastators have devastated them and destroyed their vine branches. The shields of his mighty men are colored red, the warriors are dressed in scarlet. The chariots are enveloped in flashing steel when he is prepared to march. And the cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly in the streets. They rush wildly in the squares. Their appearance is like torches. They dash to and fro like lightning flashes. He remembers his nobles. They stumble in their march. They hurry to her wall, and the mantlet is set up. The gates of the rivers are opened, and the palace is dissolved. It 
is fixed. She is stripped. She is carried away. And her handmaids are moaning like the sound of doves beating on their breast. Though Nineveh was like a pool of water throughout her days, now they are fleeing. Stop, stop. But no one turns back. Plunder the silver. Plunder the gold, for there is no limit to the treasure, wealth from every kind of desirable object. She is emptied. Yes, she is desolate and waste. Hearts are melting and knees are knocking. Also, anguish is in the whole body, and all their faces are grown pale. Where is the den of lions and the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion, lioness, and the lion's cub prowled with nothing to disturb them? The lion tore enough for his cubs, killed enough for his lionesses, and he filled his lairs with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn up her chariots in smoke. A sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the land, and no longer will the voice of your messengers be heard. This is God's word, and it is given for our instruction. May he write it upon our hearts. You may be seated. Would you join me now, and let's go before the Lord in prayer. Our God, you are great and greatly to be praised. You are exalted in the heavens. You do exactly as you please. There are none to whom you can be compared. There are none whose strength can compare to your great might. You're the sovereign ruler of all creation. You're the creator and sustainer of all things. And great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are worthy to be praised. You're worthy to receive worship and sacrificial devotion from your people. Lord, we come before your presence with thanksgiving. We enter your courts with praise. Lord, better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. Pray as we... Give our mind and our hearts to the study of your word, Lord, that you would help us to see a great and grand and majestic vision of who you are. Lord, would you show us your glory? Would you show us your power and your strength? Would you remind us, Lord, of the destruction that awaits condemned souls? Would you help us to grasp the work of Christ at the cross whereby he bore our punishment in his own body so that we could be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light? Lord, as we consider the devastation of your wrath, pray that if there are souls present who do not know Christ, pray that today would be the day of salvation. Pray that today would be the day that lost souls come to the end of sin and are made alive together with Christ. 
For those who are in Christ, Lord, I pray that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. Pray that we would have eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that are ready and eager to receive and apply the truth. Lord, we can do everything in our power and our strength to understand and to remember and to apply your word. But Lord, if it's only our strength that is applied today, we will fail. So we ask and we beg, God, that your spirit would empower us. That your spirit would take the words that are spoken and lodge them into our hearts. And pray that your word would become clear to us, that it would be convicting to us. And pray that we would put on the whole armor of God and stand firm in the strength of your might. Lord, with this great scene of battle and this great understanding of the spiritual battle that goes on today, help us to understand that our Christian life and our Christian walk needs to be taken one day and really even one step at a time. So Lord, show us sin today. Grant us repentance today. Conform us to the image of Christ today all by the powerful working of your Spirit, and all for the glory of your name. Lord, you're worthy to be praised with our every thought, our every word, and our every deed. And so that's our prayer today. That everything that's said, that everything that we think, that everything that we do, would magnify Christ, and would glorify our great God. Lord, would you help us to this end, we pray in Christ's name, amen. So if you'll go back a couple of months, maybe, we studied the book of Second Peter recently, and as we were studying it, we kind of got this feeling that it kind of had kind of that, that feel of an Old Testament prophecy. And in Second Peter, Peter is writing of judgment, of that fire and brimstone that the Lord will pour out in the last days, and it kind of has that feel of judgment. That's one of the reasons that we came to Nahum after, just wanted to continue that thought just a little bit longer and a little bit further. And Nahum then has a similar tone, only what we see in this book is the idea of a military conquest. A great city, Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire who ruled the day, we see their downfall. We see that they will be attacked by what is a pagan army ordained by the Lord to come and overthrow this great city and this powerful empire. And as we think about the battle scene before us today, what I want us to realize is that we have to take and apply the physical battle to understanding the, the spiritual war in which we find ourselves. We have to be careful, right? We don't want to misapply or overrealize the scriptures and, and take something that is a narrative and apply it to the spiritual realm in a wrong way. But when we see this battle that, that happens, we have to remember that, that our battle is not with flesh and blood. Our battle is against spiritual powers and forces that are at work through the sons of disobedience, through the powerful working of Satan, and we must wage this war. 
We must be warriors for Christ. We must do our work in the proper realm. We are not going to go from here and arm ourselves with physical armor and go and take on the world. But we will go from here and you will go into the grocery store or into the workplace this week or next or to the ball field or or wherever else you might find yourself and you must go out and be armed in the spiritual armor of the Lord ready to take on the spiritual forces of evil in the power and the strength and the might of the Lord. One of the encouragements that we can take away from a text like this is that the Lord is going to frustrate the plans of the wicked and he will cause the righteous to prosper. We don't enjoy that prosperity every day in this life. We may not enjoy that prosperity at all in this life. But the plans of the Lord will not fail and we as God's people have a glorious inheritance stored up awaiting us in heaven. The righteous will prevail. The righteous will win. Because Christ prevailed. Because Christ won. So while we are called to prepare for this battle and to fight this battle, we must see that the Lord is the one who will lay waste to his enemies. In fact, in Christ, the Lord has already laid waste to the greatest enemy, Satan, sin, and the power of death. And so we stand as those who are victorious and overcomers in Christ. We said at the outset of this study that Nahum does not really have a whole lot of direct reference, a whole lot of direct pointers to Christ. But when we study the scriptures, Christ is always the key figure. One of the things that you do when you study the word is you must find the connections to the person and to the work of Christ. So even though there is no direct pointers to Christ, we look at this and see how it shows us Christ, how it tells us of Christ, how it may tell us of the judgment that is to come to those who are not in Christ. So we must remember that we were formerly enemies of Christ. We were those who were far off and we have been brought near, we've been reconciled to God through the blood of Christ. We were once like the Ninevites who were on the path to be everlastingly destroyed by the Lord, but we're reconciled to God through Christ. As the Lord promises to restore his people in this text, dear friend, you ought to remember that the Lord has already restored you if you're in Christ. There's this great restoration of your soul. You are rescued. You are transferred from death to life. You are restored. The Lord commands the army to plunder the city of Nineveh, to take all of their valuables. And we have this great inheritance. It was not a plundering because it already belonged to Christ. And through his death on the cross and his resurrection and his ascension, through that saving work, you have an inheritance that is far greater than any plundering of physical silver in gold. Ultimately, dear friends, let's consider as a connection to Christ in this text the power of God. The power of God displayed in his destructive might carried out against this city. 
and realize, dear friend, if it is not for Christ, if you do not come to Christ in faith and repentance and turn from your sin and be covered by his blood and credited with his righteousness, the same destructive power awaits you for all eternity. So the central theme for our time together in the Word today is this. As those reconciled to Christ, as those reconciled to God in Christ, we must go to battle with our Savior. We must go to battle with Christ as our commander as he lays waste to his enemies. You're reconciled to God through Christ. You go to battle with Christ as your commander, and you do that with confidence that he is going to win the battle. You battle from a position of victory because the war has already been won. But you also go to battle from a place of submission because you are an enlisted soldier to the commander who is the king of kings. So we're going to look at this chapter in four phases. We're going to see the chosen restored, the armies compared, the mighty plundered, and then finally the enemy conquered. So verses 1 and 2, look with me there, and let's consider the chosen restored. The Lord promises to restore his people through the judgment of the wicked. The one who scatters has come up against you. Man the fortress, watch the road. Strengthen your back, summon all your strength. For the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel, even though devastators have devastated them and destroyed their vine branches. Look at the Lord's opposition to the people of Nineveh, his opposition to the wicked. The one who scatters has come up against you. The old KJV says, he that dasheth, dasheth in pieces has come up before thy face. That's why we don't speak in the old English anymore, because it's incredibly hard to say some of those words. He that dashes you into pieces has come up before your face. The one who scatters, the one who breaks, the one who destroys is right before you. Jeremiah 23, verse 29, the Lord says, Is not my word like fire and like a hammer which shatters a rock? That is the Lord, the scatterer, the breaker, the one who dashes into pieces, the one who crushes rocks like he is a hammer, this mighty force, this mighty power, and he stands before this Assyrian people and says, I am this God, and I am against you. There's no more terrifying words that could ever be spoken than for the Lord of all creation to say, I am God, and I am against you. You do not find my favor. You will find and know my wrath. These people then are like ants before a tidal wave or like a splinter of wood in a hurricane. They will be utterly thrown about by the work and power of God. It's a fearful and humbling reminder. And it's fearful and humbling to think that in the hardness of these people's hearts, do you realize the people of Nineveh heard this before their fall and there was no response? There was no change. There was no humility. And again, this is a people who had at one point responded and returned to the Lord. And yet the Lord stands up and says, I'm against you and I'm going to lay waste to your city. And it doesn't phase them. doesn't move them. And we're faced with this same hardness of heart when you're out proclaiming Christ. 
dear friend, let me tell you that you don't then turn to the philosophy of the world. You don't tweak and change the message to try to convince your hearer. You stand upon the truth. You boldly proclaim Christ and judgment. Perhaps you have the opportunity to preach to an atheist and you can tell them, regardless of what you want to believe, God reigns and you will be judged. And if you remain in your sin, that judgment is condemnation for all eternity. You stand boldly upon the truth. So the Assyrians, they had scattered and shattered and destroyed people throughout their many military conquests to come to this power today. And the Lord says, I'm going to shatter you. I'm going to scatter you. I'm going to break you down. And then he calls Nineveh to battle position. He says, man the fortress, watch the road, strengthen your back, and summon all your strength. Put your best foot forward, the Lord says. It's almost like he's taunting the people. Bring all your strength. Gather all your mighty men. And then I will break you. Then I will destroy you. Summon all your strength. And then you can go to battle against the one who created the heavens and the earth, and you will be destroyed. All of the intellect, all of the philosophy, everything that the human mind or human heart can muster fails in comparison to the strength and the might of God and His triumphant word. All the powers of the flesh are completely impotent compared to the might of God. This was a mighty empire in this day, a a practically indestructible city. And the Lord declares that he is just going to lay waste to it, basically in the blink of an eye. So then the Lord promises this defeat. And then he says, I'm going to restore my people. The Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel, even though these devastators have devastated them and destroyed their vine branches. Isaiah pictured this. Isaiah 60, verse 15 The Lord says, whereas you've been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you an everlasting pride, a joy from generation to generation. That is the restoration of the Lord. Makes you an everlasting pride, an everlasting joy, a a source of glory for the Lord from generation to generation. This is the Lord who, who exalts the humble. And he opposes the proud. Psalm 138, verse 6, Though the Lord is exalted, he regards the lowly and the haughty he knows from afar. Christ himself said, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Now, now, God's people probably did not choose their humbling in this case, and yet they had been humbled. They were lowly, and the Lord was going to oppose the proud and give grace to the humble, and they would be restored. They would be exalted. And this splendor of God's people is seen today, dear friends, hear this, in a healthy, humble, actively serving local church. And, you know, there is that transfer kind of from the old to the new of the Lord's people and today the church. He, he makes his church, he builds his church so that we can be an everlasting joy from generation to generation. 
So then we ask the question, are we a humble people whom the Lord would choose to restore and to bless? Stop and consider that. Are you a humble person whom the Lord would choose to bless and restore? Are we collectively a people who are submitted to our God in such a way that he can bless us and know that in giving us blessing, we will glorify his name? Or are we arrogant? Are we insolent? Are are we full of pride and needing to face the destructive terror of God? Consider that today. Are you humble and, and, and deserving of the Lord's blessing? Or are you arrogant and facing his condemnation and his discipline? Are you one that he would restore because you are like Christ, peaceful, gentle, lowly of heart, meek? Or are you like the Ninevites, the Assyrians, who the Lord will rise up against and cut down and destroy? Do you battle for the sake of Christ? Or do you go to war for the pleasures of your flesh? Do you battle for Christ or do you battle for yourself and your flesh? So that is the chosen of God restored. Then let's look at verses 3 through 7 and see the armies compared here. Really, I think verses 3 and 4 point to the attacking army. And then verses 5 and following are the army of Nineveh, of the Assyrians. Some would put put verse 4 with the defending army, but I think it really falls with verse 3 and those who are attacking. Verse 3 says, The shields of his mighty men are colored red. The warriors are dressed in scarlet. The chariots are enveloped in flashing steel. When he is prepared to march and the cypress spears are brandished, the chariots race madly in the streets. They rush wildly in the squares. They appear like Their appearance is like torches, and they dash to and fro like lightning flashes. Think about this army, okay? So let, let's look at this picture. We'll go through, and then we'll kind of try to pull out and apply this, take, kind of stretch it forward to our day. But just think about the picture that, that we see here. Um, this is an army that is sent by the Lord, and they are a well-prepared war machine. It's an army that is a Babylonian-led alliance, a pagan people. This is an army of pagans, but the Lord in his sovereignty and in his providence, he brings them together, he raises them up because his plan is to cut down the Assyrians. And so they come and they stand like a machine that is ready to make war. Dear friends, there is so much to see here. He says that the shields of the mighty men are colored red and the warriors are dressed in scarlet. So so you see the color red here. What does that mean? Well, Cabin would tell us that what that is is the armies of that day would often use red to conceal blood. The the armies would, would conceal their own blood so the men may not know that they're bleeding perhaps and also so the other army, the opponent, couldn't gain the momentum of seeing that their people were injured. So these, these people are dressed. They are ready to, to bring every advantage, every strength into battle. And it continues, their chariots are enveloped in flashing steel when he is prepared to march, and the, the, the spears are brandished. They are armed 
They are dressed. They're fiercely ready for battle. They're ready to make war. Dear friends, to just pull out from that. Are you ready to make war in the spiritual realm? What, what is the training ground for this war? Well, there's one training ground that we must consider, and that is the home. In your home, in your time from day to day, do you prepare yourself to go to war? Men, you are the leaders in your home. Do you prepare those entrusted to your care? Do you prepare them for war? To go out and fight against the spiritual forces of evil. They are all over the place. In fact, if you have a TV, if you have a computer, if you have a, a smartphone or any kind of device where you can see out into the public, the evil forces are already there. You must prepare for battle. You must arm your family to fight against the spiritual forces of evil, and you can't lead from behind. You lead from the front. You walk with the Lord. You get up early and study His Word. You spend time communing with the Lord in prayer. You put off sin and flesh. You discipline your life. And then you lead your loved ones to do the same. And it's not just your home. You do it with your brothers and sisters in this room, in the local church. You do it with every fellow saint as you have opportunity. So you see this picture of this army that is prepared for battle. You have to ask yourself, are we prepared for the battles that we will face and the battles that we will fight today or this week? It was James Montgomery Boyce who said of verse 4, The chariots race madly in the streets. They rush wildly in the squares. Their appearance is like torches. They dash to and fro like lightning flashes. Montgomery Boyce commented here that this chapter, as I think I mentioned earlier, is a masterpiece of ancient literature. It's unsurpassed in its graphic portrayal of this battle scene. So, so in a sense, we just step back and, and consider the, the wisdom of the Lord to paint the scene where, that we can see so clearly and so vividly, and then we allow the Spirit of God to, to work in us and to work through us through this word. So that's the attacking army, but what about the, the defending army? In verse 5, he may be referencing the king of Assyria, he remembers his nobles. They stumble in their march. They hurry to her wall. The mantlet is set up. The gates of the rivers are open and the palace is dissolved. It is fixed. She is stripped and she is carried away. Nineveh is stirred up like a beehive. They see these forces coming up against them and they just do all they can. They're running wild in the streets to try to defend their city to try to ready their defenses and to put up some kind of resistance to the advancement of this Babylonian army. But dear friends, they fail. And I think there's a takeaway that we can see there is that you can't wait until war is upon you to prepare to fight. You can't walk unwittingly into temptation and then expect to throw up your defenses and be delivered. You can't walk out into the world and, and the spiritual forces of Satan and evil and expect just in that moment suddenly to be overcome with spiritual strength and wisdom and knowledge to stand firm. Now, the Lord will help. 
The Spirit will give you the words to speak. But we must be vigilant. We must be disciplined to prepare in advance for war. The gates of the rivers are open and the palace is dissolved. The city is overrun with the waters of the river that is around it. In verse 7, it is fixed. The earthly glory of Nineveh is stripped away. Their resistance is utterly futile. It is stripped. It is carried away. The great city is washed away. And the nobles and the handmaids, it says that they are moaning like the sound of doves. They're just utterly overcome by their attackers. They were not ready to stand and defend. The Lord utterly tears them apart. So let's pull out from this just for a moment and kind of think about some some exhortation and some application here. We are the Lord's army. Uh, That's kind of the, the point that we have to consider, we have to remember. We are like this Babylonian led army that and that we are the Lord's choice people to stand and attack and to proclaim and to defend. The, the Lord's army is the church. We battle under the leadership of Christ, and we battle under the authority of His Word. We don't battle with ourselves as the commander. We, we do not advance ourselves up to the rulers of our army, but it is Christ who is the head. We must be like his mighty men. We must be girded with the truth. We must wear the shield of faith and the breastplate of righteousness. We must have our shoes shod with the gospel of peace. We must swing the sword of the Spirit. We must put on the helmet of salvation. We must be a people who are grounded in the truth of the gospel and who go to war swinging the word of God. When key to spiritual warfare is to fight only the battles that the Lord fights. Okay, we live in a day, and if you don't believe me, I can show you examples pretty quickly and easily. We live in a day where controversy is sought at every turn by many. Even those in evangelical circles. They just want to go and find a controversy, a fight to pick, an argument to, to participate in. But we don't go looking for controversy. We stand upon the truth. There's two things that we fight for. It's the glory of God, and we stand firmly upon the truth of His Word. If His glory is at stake, or the authority and the truth of His Word is at stake, that is when you fight. Otherwise, stand down and let the Lord work things out in His way. We also ought to see here, just in, in way of orienting our minds of how does this apply to us, do you see the temporary and fleeting and failing nature of man-made things? Nineveh was this great, grand, glorious army and, and city, and Assyria was this great empire, and they're just utterly torn away. These people had their pride and joy in earthly things, and they were all stripped away. The city of Nineveh was great, and great was its fall. Let's press on, and let's look at the mighty being plundered, the mighty plundered in verses 8 
through 12. It says, Though Nineveh was like a pool of water throughout her days, now they are fleeing. Stop, stop, but no one turns back. The Lord says, Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no limit to the treasure. Wealth from every kind of desirable object. She is emptied. Yes, she is desolate and waste. Hearts are melting and knees are knocking. Also, anguish is in the whole body and all of their faces are grown pale. We'll stop there. We'll pick up verses 11 and 12 in a moment. But do you see, the Lord begins by describing the former state of Nineveh. It was like a pool of water throughout her days. It was a place of wealth and comfort and relaxation. But now they are fleeing. It was a place where people came and just kind of gorged themselves on the pleasures of the flesh. Now they're fleeing. Now they're running. Now they're being oppressed by these attackers. And as they flee, they cry out, stop, stop. And yet no one turns back. The attack continues. And we have to see here that present peace and prosperity does not show us always that the Lord is actually pleased with and blessing a people. Nineveh was a, a, a place of peace and prosperity, but the Lord would stand up against them. He would reject them, and he would condemn them. So let's think about the Lord's judgment here. They cry, stop, stop, but no one turns back. I couldn't help but think about Revelation chapter 6 there. The sixth seal, verses um, 15 through 17 of Revelation chapter 6. It says, the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the cave and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who is able to stand? Kind of what goes on in Nineveh, the great day of God's wrath has come. Who is able to stand? Think about Luke chapter 16, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. When the rich man has died and he has gone to receive his eternal punishment, verse 24 says that the rich man begs, Send Lazarus so that he may dip his, the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. But the Lord says, no, there is no mercy. When this great day of wrath has come, there will be no withholding eternal judgment. There's no mercy for condemned sinners on that last day. Either you come to Christ and you're his and you're in him, or you will face this eternal judgment. So the Lord says, they are condemned, and, and then he continues, plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There's no limit to the treasure. Wealth from every kind of desirable object. They are desolate, and they are laid waste. The focus is not on the prosperity of the attackers, but on the judgment of the Lord. This prosperous city is just absolutely laid flat. It is desolated. It is overturned and overrun. The treasures of the wicked are so temporary. Do you store up for yourselves treasures in heaven or treasures that are on earth? 
You see what happens to these treasures of the wicked that are temporary and that are earthly. They're taken. And those who love those things are just utterly overcome. They're utterly overwhelmed. It's a sad and and terrifying picture. Hearts are melting. Knees are knocking. Also anguish is in the whole body. All their faces are grown pale. Trouble overwhelms God's enemy. Trouble overcomes them. Then we get this interesting picture just briefly in verses 11 and 12. Where is the den of lions and the feeding place of the young lions where the lion and lioness and lion's cub prowled with nothing to disturb them? That's a description of Nineveh. They just brought to themselves every pleasure, everything they wanted. There is nothing to disturb them, nothing to hurt them. It says that the lion filled his lairs with prey and his dens with torn flesh. They gave to themselves first-class, easy lifestyles, and yet the Lord then overthrew that. The Lord helps those who are without strength. Our lives ought to reflect the Lord's help. When we were spiritually dead, when we were spiritually weak, that is when the Lord came to us and made us alive together with Christ. And we should reflect that same kind of love to both the spiritually weak and the physically weak, and the physically needy. The Lord calls for the plunder of Assyria, not as a redistribution of wealth, but because he despises those who are consumed with worldly treasure, and he is going to bring his great and utter punishment upon them. So we don't, in this world, plunder the rich to help the poor. Rather, we give generously We give sacrificially to the care and the help of others in accordance with the Scriptures. That's one takeaway here. We don't go and plunder others. You take the ways that the Lord has blessed you, and you give sacrificially and generously so that the Lord can then turn around and bless those who are in need. So we've seen the chosen restored, the armies compared, the mighty plundered. Lastly, at verse 13, let's see the enemy conquered the enemy conquered behold i am against you declares the lord i will burn up her chariots and smoke a sword will devour your young lions i will cut off your prey from the land and no longer will the voice of your messengers be heard i think the reformation study bible offers a good summary of this it says the real secret of nineveh's full and final downfall is revealed Confrontation with Israel's almighty covenant God is fatal to the Assyrian Empire. They come up against the covenant almighty God of Israel, and they are eternally conquered. This is a judgment day that we must all consider. The Lord tells Nineveh, Behold, I am against you. But do you hear and do you understand, friend, that You will face the Lord one day too, and he very well could say to you as Christ outlined in Matthew 7, 23, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Those are kind of similar ideas. I'm against you. And Jesus' words, depart from me, I never knew you, you worker of iniquity. 
The devastation of Nineveh is but a picture of the wrath that is to come. Do you know Christ? Does Christ know you? Does Christ know you? Do you know him? How do you know that he knows you? How do you know that you know him? Well, think about Matthew 7. We get multiple answers there. Verses 13 and 14, we see that we must go through the narrow, the small gate. The gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Jesus said, I am the door. It is through Christ that we enter. If you want to know if you know Christ or not, the first question is, have you come through the blood and the work and the person of Christ? Or are you standing on your own merit? Are you standing in your own strength? Jesus continued there and gave us more to consider. In verses 15 through 20, he said that all will be known by their fruits. A good tree does not bear bad fruit. A bad tree does not bear good fruit. What is the fruit of your life? You think, you say that you've come through the small gate and you've come on the narrow way, you've entered through Christ, and then what does that produce in your life? Is it good fruit? Or is it fruit that might look good on the outside, but is diseased and eaten by worms on the inside? Or is it just an utterly destitute and ugly and diseased fruit even from the outside? You must come to Christ in faith. You must seek forgiveness in, through, and from him. And then when you enter in the narrow gate, along the narrow way, your life is transformed. You produce good fruit. Have you ever picked an apple off of an apple tree and bitten into it and seen on the inside that it was decaying, that it was rotten? Have you ever seen an apple from a tree that you've picked and you've washed and you bite into it and the taste is sweet? It's a good fruit from a good tree. Do you produce good fruit? If you've entered through the narrow way, through the small gate, and you produce good fruit, you prove that you abide in Christ, that you are one of his branches. He is the vine and you are the branches. You abide in him and you produce good fruit. Closing up in Nahum 2, the enemy is utterly conquered because of the Lord's opposition. They're overwhelmed because the Lord stands up and says, I am against you. He says that he will burn their battle weapons. He will cut off their prey from the land and no longer will their voices be heard. He will bring them to their end. The question that I would ask is, do you fight on the Lord's side? Do you find yourself in the army of Christ or are you in the world's army? Are you this attacking army that we see that is put forth by the Lord are you of the army that will be utterly destroyed? You can't fight in both. You can't have one foot in Christ's army and one foot in the world. If you do, the Lord will destroy you and the world will also hate you. You'll, you'll be attacked from both sides. At least if you 
put yourself in Christ's army and the world hates you, you know that you're in Christ. But if you try to straddle the line and, and play for both teams, you will just receive destruction and hardship at every turn. So as we saw at the outset, as those reconciled to God in Christ, we must fight in Christ's army with Christ as our commander. Judgment will come. Hebrews 9 says it's appointed for all men to die once, and after that comes the judgment. We will be found to have entered through the small gate that is along the narrow way. Or will the Lord say, I'm against you. Depart from me because I never knew you and you're a worker of lawlessness. Do you go to war for the sake of Christ? Close with these exhortations. Be reconciled, dear friend, to God and Christ. Be reconciled to God and Christ. Enter through the small gate. Bear good fruit and be a warrior for the kingdom of Christ. You do it by the power of the Spirit and for the glory of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come and we ask that you would write your word upon our hearts. Pray that your truth would bear witness to our souls. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand the truth that has been before us today. We pray that you would... Show us where we fall short. Help us to arm ourselves and to prepare for battle. Help us to stand firm against the world. Help us to resist the devil so that he flees from us. Help us to humble ourselves under your almighty hand. Lord, I pray that we would be a people for your possession and a people for your glory. We ask that you would receive honor and glory and praise through all that we've done today. We ask that you would keep us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray all this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.